0: I'm Logan Bishop from Belmont University, and you're listening to Higher Ed Social, part of the Connect EDU network. Welcome to the show. Um, this week, uh, we're here with Dr. Russell Lowry Hart. From Amarillo College, and I was going to let him, you know, kind of introduce himself.
1: Hi, thanks for for having me. I'm I'm honored to participate in the conversation and share a little bit about what we're doing in Amarillo, uh, Texas. And I'm Russell Lowry Hart. I'm born and raised in Texas, uh, born a cowboy, uh, transitioned to professor, and now am a president of a college. Something I never thought I would do. So, how did you end
0: up choosing this career? I know you've you've had quite a journey. Um, so, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, I, I grew up in a in a in a family that was challenging, and I think I can look back on my life and and see clearly that school and educators were always my saving grace. Uh, and when I got to university, um, i I found another. I found the freedom to walk in my true voice and I found that freedom from professors. And so I I think I I always wanted to stay in that environment because it was so transformative for me. But as I developed my professional goals, I wanted to provide that same experience for other students uh, just like me. And and hopefully I've been able to do that. That's
0: an amazing story. And I say that because it's probably one of the more important reasons why people do Higher ed. I mean, it's it's incredibly important for folks to come into the, the fold like that and to think about how they're going to affect people and how the, the the kind of impact that they can make. And that's so important. How did you start in higher ed?
1: Well, I I mean, really, I I started in higher ed as a student um, mm-hmm. that worked on campus and felt really connected and was elected student body president, something that was shocking to me and the people that I grew up with. Um, And that's when I started to see higher ed as a sector, not just an experience to Mm -hmm. a job, but potentially a job. And I had a mentor, Bob Artibedian, who went on to be president of a a university, um, who really challenged me to think about higher ed as a career. And I I I didn't really know what those options were and because of my relationship with him I ended up in a graduate assistantship when I graduated that involved teaching a class and I can tell you definitively in the first 10 minutes of the first day of teaching my first class that I had found my home that that was what I was called to do and uh where I would uh want to spend the rest of my life and um and I think it, it was just, um, I don't know, connecting with students and helping them find their own voice in the way that my professors had helped me find mine was thrilling and exciting, but it, it, it also felt really important and purposeful. And, and that's really how my journey into the sector as a job started, was teaching a grad class um, and at Texas Tech University.
0: <laughs> you're not the you're not the last person that i know that started there um from texas uh um our um, former dean of students who's actually been on the show he actually just left um oh wow uh he uh he started at texas tech um and uh yeah it's a great school from what i hear
1: it, it, it is a great school but from for me um I was born and raised in the Texas Panhandle, so my undergrad was here, my master's was at Tech, which was here, and I'd never lived anywhere else or really never knew that there was any other place than the region that that I lived, and I had experiences, my PhD program was at Ohio University, and I I lived outside of Texas for the first time in my life as a 23-year-old, and and met people from all over the world and realized how limited my worldview was um, because I had only grown up here and I felt a calling at some point to come back here and help other students see what was possible for themselves in the way that I had been able to see for myself. And, and that's what I've tried to do in my entire career, um, which is, you know, as soon as I could was coming back to the very region that defined me.
0: That's, that's awesome. Amarillo is doing a lot of kind of awesome things. And I know you've, you've talked, um, you, you, there was an article in the Atlantic, I think, and, Mm -hmm. and some other things, but tell, tell me a little bit about what you've been doing at Amarillo. Um, I know, uh, you guys have been committed to serving as an economic driver of the community. Um, And the region. So tell us a little bit about how you've done that and and what kinds of work you do um, to help students succeed
1: Well, when I came to Amarillo College in 2010, I looked at our success rates and I was frankly embarrassed of them and as a as what was then a true academic at heart I set out to understand from our students what they needed from us to change those success rates. So I wanted to know what was keeping them from being successful in the classroom. And I went into those conversations thinking that uh, they were gonna need the very academic interventions I was prepared to give them. They needed more tutoring, which they do. They needed um, more um, support in learning how to study, which they did. They needed help finding uh, a career path that made sense to them, which they, they do. But what changed me personally and professionally is that in those conversations that I had with students, um, the top 10 things our students told us in focus groups and subsequent surveys that were keeping them from being successful in the classroom had nothing to do with the classroom. Hmm. Child care, health care, housing, food, utility payments... Um, legal services, because we we penalize poverty in this country more than we penalize other things. And I went into these conversations thinking my students, whom I loved and adored, needed academic interventions. And what I learned is that if I wanted to change their academic pathway, I actually had to think about and systemically respond to what was happening to their life outside. Right. Of so if we were going to change the economic um Outlook of our community, which is a rural community, which is, uh, which at the time wasn't a favorable outlook because we were drowning in generational poverty and low education attainment. I had to rebuild and reimagine the college to respond to who our students were rather than spending so much time trying to get our students to adapt to who we were. And that was the foundation. Uh, the foundational philosophy shift that started uh, reimagining and reforming Amarillo College into the college that's moved our completion rates from 13 percent in 2009 to 53 percent in 2019.
0: Wow, that's amazing! How did you kind of bring your strategic vision to reality?
1: How did you make that happen? Well, it's a it's a really important question. Um, And, and, and I think an interesting, um, answer, the foundational to all of that was getting really clear that we, that higher education was the problem. The students Mm -hmm. weren't the problem. We were the problem and what we learned from our students. And I even let our students design the perfect college for them. And in that process. What they designed became the values for Amarillo College. So our students wrote the values. um, They defined uh, what those values meant. And then we had to build ourselves to those values. And they're not things that are typically found in higher education. So most of us in higher ed administration come to this with an idea of what we think needs to happen. And then we try to convince our faculty and staff and students to do it. What we've done at Amarillo College is actually listen to our students, understand who they are and what they need from them, and are committed that we're going to love the students we have, not the students we wished we had, mm-hmm. or the students we used to have 30 years ago that most of our institutions are, are designed for and built to the students we have and to systemically love them to success. So for us, that meant... Um, letting our students tell us what they needed and then and it wasn't necessarily what we thought they needed and building those structures around and allowing and empowering students to, um, to build and, and reshape their own educational experience. So what our students told us they needed more than anything were relationships and service. So we've systemically built relationships into everything that the students experience through the college and are really intentional about hiring uh, faculty and staff that are committed to the values that our students have identified, which are relational values. Um, and and with all the structures that we have in higher education, simplifying our processes and empowering all of our employees to, to remove a barrier for students and to love the students that come, comes in their pathway um, and to love them to success. And we've been able to do that it's not been easy, but um, but it started with listening to our students. And what they told us is that that poverty was was drowning everything in their life. And so the first thing we did is we went through poverty training, we closed the college down. Dr. Donna Beagle provided poverty training. And then we looked at um, we looked at uh, innovations that were happening, in and outside the education sector and we found mm-hmm. one in a elementary school in San Diego called Lost Penn and
0: That's the awesome. principal
1: there Lost Penn Elementary and the, the principal there was named David Lopez and he'd created this no excuses philosophy and fundamentally it means as educators we are the ones that can't accept excuses. It's not telling our students pick themselves up by the bootstraps that they don't have. It's that when when a student fails, it means we as the teachers, as the workers, as the leaders, don't have an excuse. And if the student fails, it's because we didn't have the right person policy or process in place to ensure their success. So loving our students, understanding the poverty that really shaped their worldview, and then orienting ourselves not to accept excuses that are so really accepted in every other institution were foundations to that reformation.
0: I think that's that's what we should all be trying to do in higher ed. And I think that's something that people don't realize is that financial barriers, like, they really do they really do hurt students. I mean, they come in and, you know, they they take loans and they, they do everything that they can to to come to school here and and then, you know, maybe they fail a class or something because they have to also work, you know, 40 hours a week at the same time to, to help their families.
1: We think that, um, that giving a scholarship solves the problem, that as long as we can help students pay their tuition, then we have made college accessible and affordable to them. And Sarah golda who's written this amazing book called Paying the Price, aptly explains that tuition is only one financial barrier that our students face. And it, they're they're faced at your institution and mine. It's it's not specific to Amarillo College or a specific sector in higher education. Um, our students across the country are burdened with the cost of higher education and burdened with the cost of of paying for their living expenses while they go to school. So That's right. our students are working two part time jobs while they go to school and. They can't. It's not just paying for tuition. It's paying for childcare, for transportation, for housing and food. And the research that's been conducted at the Hope uh, Center at Temple University is clear: forty percent of students nationwide are housing insecure, and thirty-four percent of students nationwide are food insecure in universities. The right. community college numbers are significantly higher than that, and. We have to acknowledge the barriers and the that our students are bringing with them if we want them to be successful in our institutions. We do. We have to find
0: ways to um, to help them overcome those barriers too. We I have mean, that's, to. And you know, it, it's not just financial. It's it's also you know student care and support. I mean that's incredibly important too um, because students these days, you know. They're dealing with so many things that can affect their mental health, that can affect, um, you know, their well-being in general. Um, And, you know, it's it's a tough world out there, especially, you know, the economy may be doing great or seem to. But, you know, there's so many there's so many barriers and there's so many things that um, especially low income students have to overcome just to get an education. And that's, you know, that's tough.
1: What, what we're learning is that it's it's that it that the issues of uh, the high cost of education are affecting not just our low-income students but our middle class families as well yeah. um, we uh, our, our students are working they're paying their way through school but what they're making fundamentally is so much less than what a student was making 30 years ago when and when you account for inflation, right, and cost, so they're making less in comparison, but the cost to go to school is so significantly higher. And as as institutions, if we want to save our communities, if we want to diversify our economies, we've got to improve education attainment. And we can't improve education attainment if we don't, um, if we're not committed to creating cultures of caring that will love our students to graduation. So to
0: kind of change gears a little bit, um, you know, as I mentioned, you guys are working really hard to, um, you know, become an economic driver for the community in the region. And you just, um, established an innovation hub, right? Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Well, we're, we're a rural community. We're four hours from Albuquerque, Denver, Oklahoma city, five hours from Dallas. We're, Literally in the middle of nowhere, and we're we're, as a college are going to have to be foundational to changing the economic opportunities that our students have. So, our innovation tech hub is designed to create new industries that will uh, bring new tech specific jobs to our community. We're training students in those skills and attracting new companies to come to our community um, so that our students have more options available to them and and usually what you find is is higher education entities are responding to the job markets in their communities mm-hmm. In rural communities higher education entities are going to have to create the job markets that diversify our economic outlook and that's what our our tech innovation hub is doing we're we're in the process of of launching uh, a VFX studio that would allow us to train students in, uh, in, in, in the art of, of creating VFX to finish off movies and, and, and attract those kinds of tech specific jobs to our communities that could then impact other industries beyond film. Uh, and, and we're excited that we're going to, we're starting to have some success doing that.
0: That's great. We actually had, um, Dr. Martha Saunders, um, the president of University of West Florida here um, on the show uh, back uh, at the end of 2019. And, um, you know, they're doing some very similar things in their, uh, uh, in their community around Pensacola. You know, I think it's incredibly important for universities, especially in a time right now, um, when, you know, the enrollments for higher ed are kind of shrinking because the number of high school graduates are also shrinking out there so you know we all have to find ways to both be innovative and we have to find ways to um, to differentiate ourselves from you know other institutions um, so you know it's it's really important not just for the students and for the community but also for you know the institution itself um, to stay alive in this in this kind of changing world um, and you know that's that's one of those things about our industry that I know a a lot of folks are a little nervous about is, you know, these declining enrollments. And then at the same time, you know, college is so expensive. Um, You know, we have to find ways to, to innovate our own industry to find ways to, to do it better, to treat, you know, not that we treat students badly, but to treat them better like they should be Um, and, and empower them to, um, to not just succeed, but also, you know, personally, uh, to fail, um, and to have right. a safe space for them to learn that failing is not truly failure until they give up. And that's, you know, that's well, kind of a personal philosophy, but
1: yes. Well, but an important one, um, and you can look at the shifts in demographics and the, the shifts in population, and know that higher education is gonna have to fundamentally reimagine itself or we're not gonna survive. And the institutions that are able to look at their communities and not just be responsive to them, but take responsibility for leading them in different directions and challenging the the traditions of of higher education are the ones that are gonna survive. And those institutions that doubled down on protecting what is rather than reimagining what could be are the are among the first that'll go.
0: We're already starting to see that happen. Um, we more so, more so earlier in the previous decade. <laughs> it's weird saying that because we're I guess we're still in the <laughs> I guess we're still in the 2010s uh, until next year. But um, that's a hot debate on the internet. I know. Um, it is. <laughs> well, it happened around the millennium, too. So, OK. <laughs>
1: so, so the thing for me, when you look at the demographics that that we're missing in our sector is, yeah, we have a smaller group of 18 year olds uh, because the population is, is smaller. But if you analyze the number of adults that live in our communities that have no post-secondary credential they're double the size of the 18-year-olds that are graduating high school. And, and we have an opportunity to make ourselves useful and applicable to that adult learner that needs to advance their skills to advance in their work. Um, but we so often think of ourselves monolithically as um, the institution for the 18-year-old, and we've got to change that.
0: We do. We really do. So if there's one thing... That you could tell your colleagues and you know folks that work in higher ed because we have folks um, that listen to the show that are in marketing, that are in admissions, you know, uh, you know student life, uh, all those kind of fun things. What do you th- what do you see as the future of where we're going? And you know, what do you think is the single most important thing uh, that folks should should worry about as they're you know continuing their careers in higher ed?
1: I think we have so many traditions in higher education that are just that they're based in tradition that we have compla- conflated with, um, some kind of data point or experience that makes them true. And I'll give you an example. There's no empirical data that says learning magically happens in six, six 16 weeks, <laughs> a semester. so There are lots of those kinds of traditions that we cling on to uh, without any real empirical data that says that they're optimal. And if we're gonna save our sector, we've gotta listen to our student and adapt to her and empower her and understand her. And we've gotta be willing to challenge the very foundations of our sector, like 16 week semesters, like learning happens in a classroom, that learning comes from uh, one person over the course of a class rather than uh, experiences that lead to learning. If, If we cannot rethink the foundations of our sector, then industry is going to respond by doing it without us. And if we can listen to our students and respond to them and listen to our communities and what they need from us and build ourselves for them rather than so tightly clinging on to protecting what is, we can actually be the foundation for a renaissance of learning in our entire country. Uh, But without it, we're going to be left behind and potentially uh, left without.
0: Well, that is a great place to end the show this week. Thanks so much, Russell, for joining us my privilege thanks for having me listeners head down to highered.social and get links to the stuff we talked about today and subscribe to the show anywhere you listen to podcasts if you like the show please consider giving us a review on apple podcasts it helps people find us and lets us know what you think of the show don't forget to follow us on twitter at hes podcast send us a tweet we love talking to you and don't forget to let us know if you want to be on the show Higher Ed Social was created by Jackie Betrano and me, Logan Bishop, and is produced by the amazing Emma Hawes. We're part of the Connect Edu Network, the first podcast network for higher education. Visit the website connectedu.network and subscribe to some awesome shows no matter where you work on campus. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.